do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Few papers in the regenerative agriculture space have been shared more than the investment case for ecological agriculture written by Paul McMahon, the co-founder of SLM Partners in 2016. I've shared it countless times, learned a lot from it, from the simple investment terms describing why it makes so much sense to put money to work in real regen ag. Now it's been updated, or even better, completely rewritten, with a lot more science and a lot more experience from the field. Join me in a conversation with one of the most experienced Regen Farm investors out there when we explore the modules of our recent video course on why we need to change agriculture and the food system urgently and why the time is now to do it. And yes, we talk about yields and yes, we talk about more importantly profits and the regenerative edge, which is real. This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, wear and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in Regen Ag. That is gumroad.com slash investing in Regen Ag. Or find the link below. Today, a very special episode. This is part of the series of interviews where we unpack our video course, which we relaunched recently. I'm just delighted to have Paul McMahon back on the show because it would have been impossible to record the first few urgency modules where we talk about why we should act now and fundamentally change agriculture and food and why we can act now. It would have been impossible without the white paper he wrote in 2016 and now recently rewrote. We interviewed him first in November 2016. It was the third interview ever on the podcast. And then he came back in November 21. And I'm very happy um, in February 2024 to have him back just after the new white paper has been launched by SLM, which of course we'll link below. Um, so I'm very happy to have you back here, Paul. Welcome. Third time is a charm. Thank you, Ken. Great to be back again. And I mean, you just come off a, a launch of a white paper. It's being shared a lot uh, online. I think you had, I don't know, more than 250 people on uh, on a webinar to launch it. And it, that has changed, I think, quite dramatically compared to 2016. Do you remember the launch of the first white paper? Yeah, it was very much a, what you call a stealth launch, a, you know, a soft launch. I think back then, no one was really talking about regenerative agriculture. The term barely existed. Um, I saw some very small circles. Um, and the white paper was called differently, like ecological agriculture, I think. Well, we call yeah, the investment case for ecological farming. We did reference regenerative agriculture as well, you know, within the first page. 
Um, so I think they're interchangeable terms. But yeah, back then, no one's really talking about this uh, outside of um, maybe a few very much pioneering farmer circles, really, you know, very much on the ground innovators who were doing interesting things, but it hadn't really bubbled up, I would say, to the, the general food system level or even the uh, certain investor level yet. So that's how we wrote it, was to trying to bring to light um, some of the exciting developments that were happening on the ground, highlight some of the problems with the conventional food system, but then point forward really to some solutions um, and exciting solutions, which are good for the planet, but could also be a good investment opportunity as well. And like to start with that piece of why we should act now to change the current food system or the conventional, a lot of people don't like the, the term, let's say the extractive, uh, non-regenerative food system and agriculture system we have now compared to the first white paper. And now I think like what has changed in terms of uh, just, I mean, a lot of things got worse and a lot of things got more extreme, but like have fundamental points changed in your uh, in your view, as you wrote and updated the white paper and redid it, like that, that piece on the urgency has that, has that shifted? Um, I think there's yet more research as there's an awareness of some of the issues around, you know, the current food systems. And we break it down to five major themes. So one is around soil health, you know, and the, and the gradual degradation of soils around the world. Um, I think that, that theme is continues to be reinforced. To be honest, I, we, we, we we see some exaggeration though of that as well. Like there's this quote from the FAO that we only have 60 years left of harvests. And, you know, I don't buy that. I think some of that is a little bit exaggerated. I think you lose credibility and people use. Yeah. We um, look for that. Actually, it's like difficult that. to find, to find there's a Reuters article and then it's very difficult to find sort yeah. of a source for that. But I, I put it in the course, not because of that, that quote, because depends where you are. Context is probably a bit too much, but there's an underline, there's a sentence underneath, which then, since then has also disappeared. Like luckily I took a screenshot that it takes 10,000 years to build, I think an inch of topsoil or something like that. And yeah, which the fact that we that's also know is, gives us a lot we also know yeah. is wrong. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I think a more interesting I think, sentence actually. I, I think that the, so there's a certain amount of environmental doom mongering going on. And I think we need to guard against that as well. So I think we do lose credibility with, um, with scientists and with farmers, you know, if we go too far. But at the same time, there's plenty of evidence showing that there are real issues with how our soil is being degraded and, and losing its biological life. You know, I think there was a great, as you recent paper on this, I think published in Nature, where they, they showed that, um, I think a third of the world's uh, cropland would be degraded and useless within 200 years. So it's not 60 years, but still 200 years isn't, is it still a blip in time, you know, in sort of human history. So there's definitely a real problem there. And, and, and we all know it needs to be addressed you know, around soil health. I think the second theme, of course, we've probably got even more attention over the last eight years is climate change. Um, and both the role of agriculture as a major source of emissions. So I think about 24% of uh, human greenhouse gas emissions are associated with agriculture, either directly or indirectly. And so there's a huge urgency now imperative about reducing those emissions. But on the flip side, um, there's, a, I think, increasing recognition of the role agriculture can play in storing carbon um, in soils, in, in landscapes. I think that has really evolved and developed um, a lot since 2016. I think back then, IPCC and other kind of policy making for uh, agriculture, forestry weren't really mentioned and they weren't in the picture. But I think since then, there's been real recognition that nature-based solutions, agriculture, soils can play an important role in mitigating climate change. So that's been great to see. And there's just a lot more science to back it up. Um, I think the third area around biodiversity, that's come on a lot. You know, I think, again, eight years the ago. The last few years. What, Marley, yeah. yeah. It, it, and even the last three years, I think there's been an explosion of interest in biodiversity, recognition of 
um, the problem of biodiversity loss, you know, this is six mass extinction we're going through. And I think there's some research showing that agriculture is responsible for probably 85% of the biodiversity loss. Um, but there's also, I think, a recognition that uh, regenerative agriculture, the way we manage our landscapes can um, help restore that biodiversity, um, conserve habitats and help you know, turn that around. So, yeah, biodiversity has really picked up um, steam, I'd say, you know, as, as an important topic. Um, the fourth round water, I'd say that's probably been, you know, that's been well known, you know, about the issues with uh, the use of freshwater resources for irrigation and over extraction, you know, certain uh, water basins, but also the issue of nutrient runoff and dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, well known. Um, I think we didn't find maybe a whole lot of new research, just more probably good examples of regenerative farming systems that can deliver the improvements you want. I think then the fifth area, though, I think, again, has come on quite a bit is the recognition of um the uh, the poor quality of a lot of our food today you know the new the nutritional dumbing down of our foods over the past 50 to 80 years um and the lack of of uh, minerals and vitamins and other micronutrients the impacts that can have for human health and that's partly because of plant breeding and the way we we, we grow our animals but it's also because of again going back to those um lifeless chemical dependent soils which don't have the healthy ecosystem of microbes of fungi bacteria which as you uh, deliver these micronutrients to the plants which we can then eat and so i think this this amazing book came out by professor david montgomery and his wife and beakley on what your food ate i think you interviewed him recently um and i think he synthesized you know a lot of the recent research in that that's still a, a very new field an emerging field we think there's huge potential though uh, as we understand the differences between different types of food and how the healthy food is linked to healthy soils um, and therefore to, to, to healthy uh, humans as well. So, yeah, so um, I think we've just confirming the original uh, themes, but um, trying to highlight the new research, um, which has come out on, on each of those areas. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, it's been fascinating to see going back also when we remade the video course and going back to... The original white paper you wrote but also going back to our original video course we saw that the nutrient density or quality discussion and connection to soil was actually quite present already in your original white paper i, I remember seeing um what you wrote on on why that's the case why we think it's the case because it wasn't so much research yet because it was way before but when i looked at what interviews we've recorded back then at the time and and now i mean we've done two full series on it we've had uh, Anne and david uh, on and and of course we we had a lot of scientists on as well so that seems to have really at least moved more into the spotlight still not common knowledge i think we shouldn't expect that everybody read that book especially people who work in the health sector um, and thus it, it doesn't necessarily translate to um, to more revenue for farmers or paid for quality or something like that. I think there's a, a huge gap there to what we now know and what means on the ground every day for your pistachios, for your almonds and, and for beef and, and grain, etc. I mean, there's, there's a huge gap, but I think we're going to see a lot. If you uh, will update this again or write a new one in four or five years, I think there will be hopefully some examples where we start to connect that 
and actually have a flow of capital that makes sense for farmers or landowners or investors, etc., that are that can show that their quality is fundamentally different. Uh, but I was surprised how little we paid attention to it. We mentioned it was an important module in the first um, first video course we did, but it wasn't. We just didn't have a lot of episodes to to refer to because we just didn't have a lot of people to talk to in that, and that has changed significantly um, over the last uh, couple of years. And another one. Do you see that narrative in the biodiversity piece? Um, I don't know. I feel like a number of years ago, but maybe the bubble was just a bit different. There was a lot of discussion of this uh, sparing versus uh, and, and intensifying and sparing. So if we just intensify the current agriculture system, we can produce more on less land and then leave the rest to nature, whatever that means. That seems to have sort of moved away a bit or at least be less present. But still the narrative of combining having nature and a lot of biodiversity on productive land seems still very far away from many people to, to grasp that. Do you feel that is a strong narrative that, that is holding us back because many people simply cannot imagine that there could be biodiversity on a productive farm? Yeah, I think it's still a pretty hot contested, hotly contested subject, you know, that land sparing versus land sharing. Um, and I think we've seen it pushed by certain business models as well, for example, the kind of vertical farming or, you know, lab-based meats and more technological, you know, food production systems kind of latch onto that. If you can take land out of agriculture production, that's going to be good for nature. And of course, you by know, definition, the, it's also says yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And of course, there's a real, of course, there's a, a real value to conserving natural areas, natural habits that we have left in, in the planet. But um, as is our view is we don't want to then just put all our focus on those those areas and exclude the majority of land, which is farmed, and whether for crops or, or for livestock, you know, that is most of the planet. It is affected by human management. And we think there's massive potential there to, to, to change how those lands are managed um, in such a way to increase biodiversity on farms and productive lands. You know, so it's really, I think, both, you know, we conserve the natural habits we have, but then we don't give up on the productive areas, you know, and, and we can do things to improve Again, the healthy soil, biologically active soils is the foundation and that can, and reducing chemical pesticide use can support insects because they're bird life, flora, fauna, and all the way up through the, the, the pyramid, you know, the, the, the species pyramid. So yeah, we, we think, we think that, um, more work, a lot more research is required on that, of course, as well, because one thing we've seen biodiversity is quite hard to measure, um, and report on. It can be very expensive to do it well. And so I think there's still, we're still lacking some of the data, I suppose, to really weigh up the impacts and the trade-offs, you know, of these different approaches. And in your conversations with investors, because you have a lot of them, uh, those, I mean, you have a lot of those conversations, what has changed over the last years? Has it, like, is the interest, how's the, how's the tone, let's say, of the conversations changed? And are they actually wiring money? Because the tone can change, but if people are not wiring, uh, we're not getting anywhere. What, what has yeah. shifted? Has something shifted there finally, or are we still very early? Yeah, well, I think one thing we've seen over the last two to three years, regenerative agriculture has become a hot topic. You know, everyone's talking about it, um, whether it's, it's uh, farmers, it's food companies, it's governments, or it's investment managers or, or investors. So there's a huge exposure of interest in the topic. Um, I think that's led to uh, a certain amount of confusion amongst investors because they don't know really what the topic means. You know, so there isn't a commonly accepted definition. What, what is regenerative agriculture? Um, I think also they get even more confused because there, there's two 
almost risks I think we see with the current conversation with regenerative agriculture. On the one side, there's going to be a certain amount of hype, like people almost overselling the power of regenerative agriculture, claiming it can address climate change, it can solve all environmental problems, but also it can be you know, a trillion dollar investment opportunity yeah. producing yeah, venture type returns. So I think um, I think some of those claims can um, uh, can be a little bit misleading. On the other hand, we ha- we see quite a bit of greenwashing where we have, let's say, more um, conventional uh, producers, farmers, investors, or managers claiming to be regenerative um, and putting that regenerative label on uh, what they're doing. And in many cases, they're not doing anything different from before. It's still sort of business as usual. All they're changing is how they, they maybe measure and report on what they're doing. But I think that can weaken, let's say, the term regenerative agriculture. If if you know everything has always been regenerative, then why bother <laughs> trying to change anything? So I, yeah, so I have some sympathy for investors who are coming to the space for the first time that they there's a lack of definition, there's hype on one side, greenwashing the other, and one of the main reasons we wrote the white paper was to help uh, investors navigate through um, this sort of uh, these you know, perilous waters, you know, and get to the other side. And understand the the potential of regenerative agriculture, but also some of the risks and challenges, you know, and and uh, and, and come into it in a very kind of clear headed, uh, sort of realistic way. Yeah, no, there's definitely the risk of a lot of large la- land investors, specifically or land funds, that suddenly, like like a few years ago, suddenly they put all their SDGs everywhere, and they were suddenly also working on water, and they were working on this, they're working on that. And now, of course, funds are being renamed and, and names pop up left and right. And, and all they do is maybe be slightly less bad or like on the, like working on sustainability instead of going through, which is super difficult. Let's not, let's not underestimate um, the, the shifts, but they cannot all be working on regenerative. Then we'll be at 20, 30, 40% of the land and that's impossible. And so there, something must be off there. Yeah. And, and, and just, but I think the good news is we have seen a lot more real interest among investors, you know, um, who have You've been able to step through yeah. The, the, yeah. this landscape and people are making commitments, you know, like our, just looking at our business, you know, we, we started in 2009, you know, as a, as a pretty pure play asset manager focused on regenerative agriculture and forestry. We raised our first fund in Australia in 2012. It took us many, many years, you know, to have uh, hard, I hard remember. work yeah. to build the business. But I think we now manage over $580 million, you know, around the world through funds and separate accounts. And we're investing in three continents in Australia, Europe, and the US. And a lot of that growth has come in the last two or three years. Like it's been quite exponential. You know, and do you see that easily years. doubling again? I mean, I'm not going to ask the billion dollar question, but do you see like a clear path? Like if you would have the same amount of money like, in a couple of years, you could put that to work, even though it, it's not that you put 10 billion, 10 billion to work easily, but a few hundred million more is, is there space for that? C- completely. Yeah. And, we, and I think because we, we've taken the time to build their uh, implementation capacity in, in, in each geography. So we've got people on the ground with connections to farmers with, who we can identify opportunities. So we kind of build it from the ground up and then try and find the capital to, to match that. So I think, yeah, the opportunities are there and we do see, we continue growth and ability to scale. I think there's increasing investor interest as well. It's driven by two things. So one is, you know, what we do, we focus on real assets and farmland investing, and we're seeing increasing investor interest in real assets as a part of their f- uh, portfolio. So it's almost a financial motivation. They like the um, diversification, the lack of correlation of asset class, the, the income yield, the downside protection, the inflation hedging. So 
people making allocations to real assets within that, maybe allocating to farmland and forestry you now more than you know ten years ago for sure. So that's that's the one reason. Got bigger, but the yeah. second is really around impact and mm-hmm. and commitments that investors are making on around nature, and natural capital, climate, biodiversity, and investing in regenerative agriculture is a way in which they could deliver on some of those commitments um, and help with their reporting and, and their alignment with, with sort of global initiatives. So those financial impact motivations, I think, are, are often where they overlap is where we see a lot of investor interests and the kinds of strategies that we develop. And is it more institutional or more private as in family offices? And I mean, they can also become institutional, but let's say uh, the, the private wealth side or the institutional space, pension funds yeah. and things like that. I think it's a mix. I think of our, the capital we manage, uh, if you add it all up, it's probably three quarters institutional capital. So we manage um, money on behalf of large insurance companies, pension funds, um, uh, and then we also work with a number of family offices as well from, from big to small. Um, and so I think there's, yeah, there's interest in all, all, all those, uh, types of investors in, in this space. And you mentioned something before we work from the ground up and, and in the, the current white paper, it was very clear, uh, the scarcity of farmers, like that's a uh, big, and we hear that constantly, the amount of landowners I know that would welcome an experienced regen farmer tomorrow on their land or would, or investors that would love to co-invest with experienced regen farmers, et cetera, et cetera, that are able to talk investor language, manage large scale uh, estates, et cetera. Um, th- there's a lot of work for them, let's say. How do you, um, first of all, how did you identify that from the beginning and how do you mitigate that? Yeah, no, I think um, that that's the other thing we tried to do in this white paper was to really uh, draw on the lessons that we've learned over the last sort of 10 plus years investing in regenerative agriculture around the world. And I say the number one thing we've learned is the importance of partnering with the right local farmers. And I think we always knew this would be, you know, a, a key factor, but I think our actual experience on the ground is just, um, has just emphasized and, and cemented that. Um, because there aren't, you know, this type of, rege- well, first, I think the first one is, um, farming is a tough business, you know, so farming well of any type um, is hard, requires a very skilled uh, person. There are few very successful farmers in general. That's just, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and they need this com- amazing combination of skills from, from agronomy to ecology, to mechanic, to marketer, to kind of team leader, CEO, and branding. <laughs> it's an incredible mixture of skills. So finding a good farmer is hard in the first place. But farming generally is particularly hard because it typically, it often requires a higher level of knowledge um, and skills and understanding of the interaction of these ecological, biological processes and how to harness them. So it's, it's an even rarer, uh, more specialized group. Um, and we found it's, it's hard to create those farmers, you know, and, and to train. I think that, of course, there's a huge need for training. Um, but our business model has focused more and more over time on finding the existing regenerative organic farmers who have done it for a while and who want to scale. And then we try and back them and help them expand. That's the way I think we've been able to de-risk the strategies for our investors. Absolutely, we need training. We need new farmers as well. And we do lots of things to help that indirectly. Um, but it's almost maybe it's more philanthropic uh, capital and, and government-backed initiatives that, that can that can drive that. Our focus is in helping, uh, yeah, helping existing regenerative farmers scale up. Yeah, and through that, indirectly, you will train the next generation as well. Like, do we need this larger, um, and some people are going to email me now, but we need this larger, professionally run, investor-backed farms as training ground for 
a lot more other farmers that are going to run other operations and are going to be invested backed or, or invested by XYZ because otherwise where else can you learn this at scale and, and with um, with investor communication and with which is a very different thing than running your family farm with all respect but it's a very different diff, different beast if you have investors to communicate with that live very far away and have no clue what you're doing uh, on the land and so that scarcity has it like has it become easier to find these farmers in the hubs you're working or has it is it a constant challenge and whenever you find one you jump on the opportunity to buy the neighbor and help him or her um, I, I think there's an there is a shift going on within the farming community. There's a much greater openness to these regenerative farming practices and ideas um, than there was even 10 years ago. You know, if you look, for example, organic farming almost as a subset of regenerative agriculture, like that's an interesting case in point where, you know, organic food sales are now 6% of total food sales. It's, it's a significant part of, of markets. It's, you know, maybe 20 years ago it was seen as something for, you know, kind of hippies or hobby farmers, environmentalists, but now as you've seen, it's a, it's a proper business and, and, and real farmers, you know, are actively involved in it. So I think there's, there's definitely great interest in this amongst farmers. They also, because they they struggle, they struggle with high input costs, with prices they can't control, with very, um, you know, small margins and a lot of risk. And so I think the good farmers are always looking for ways to reduce costs, decommodify the production, you know, and seeking higher margin business lines. And that's where regenerative organic, you know, can maybe deliver that. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's definitely a greater pool to draw from, um, but it's still not the mainstream, you know, so you still have to be very selective and put a lot of work in to get get on the ground and, and, and build relationships and, and, and find good farmers to work with. And then you mentioned something fascinating in, in the current white paper, the regenerative edge. Uh, which for sure is going to be shared uh, widely uh, and people are going to be very happy that they saw that. Like, can you, can you walk us through what, what leads to and, and why you called it the regenerative edge? Yeah. So I think the white paper, maybe less than half of the white papers are more around the science and, and the impacts and what we've talked about so far. But the other half is very much around the investment case, you know, and trying to uh, show that regenerative farming can be um, economically better for the farmer, but also for investors who support, you know, that farmer. Um, and I think there's a number of ways that, that those higher returns or higher, better economics can, can be achieved. Um, the number of levers that you can pull, you know, on the one hand, um, it can be through higher yields. And we certainly see that in certain cases where you're increasing production on the land through your regenerative practices. Oh, now I have to interrupt you. Like we're not all going to starve when we move to regenerative agriculture. <laughs> Sorry, man. No, the I narrative think... is very interesting here because the yield is like, uh, we're recording this as farmers are protesting um, in all over Europe and, and other places. Let's interrupt. Okay, we're going to come back to the investment case, but the yield, you say a very interesting line as well. There's no single story on yield. Um, let's unpack that a bit and then we're going to come back to the investment case. So when investors, because I'm just playing devil's advocate here, say, yeah, but what about yield? What, what, what do you normally answer to them? I'm asking for a friend. Yeah. Uh, and I, in this paper, I think we, we do take quite a nuanced approach. You know, I think it's it's all context specific. It depends on local ecosystems, local markets, what you are growing um, and, and the practices that you're using. So there isn't a, a, a single story here. There's absolutely examples of regenerative farming practices, which improve soil health, improve soil organic matter, lead to higher yields. Um, so so we, there's plenty of case studies there around the world of that. 
we see in particular in grazing systems, actually livestock, pasture-raised livestock systems, by using types of rotational grazing, dividing land up into smaller fields, using fencing, water points, and, and managed grazing, you can increase carrying capacity, so carry more animals on the same grass. By significant amounts, we've seen... By significant amount, yeah. We've seen yeah, increases of up to 50% plus um, carrying capacity increases and on even the same And even anecdotally, I've heard way more as well, which we yeah. need more research to go into. But that's, that's an in... Like, just realizing that that's possible how far we can push it is a second but that's possible without a lot of inputs or potentially without any inputs and restoring pasture land and all the biodiversity stuff that comes with this yep. we've seen fascinating research coming out of that plus the carbon piece which is being researched often like but even just the carrying capacity goes up which means more calories per hectare acre whatever you're measuring Exactly. And it takes uh, maybe some capital expenditure, some capex, you know, and infrastructure, but the actual is an investment. input costs so, are, yeah. are extremely low. Um, so, yeah, we're, we think it's great potential in, in grazing systems. Um, I think, though, when, when it comes to other regenerative farming systems, such as organic, it, it's not that isn't it isn't always the case. You know, um, I, I, we do see sometimes some slightly Panglossian claims that you know, organic farming has the same yields. And there are some crops where yields can get pretty close. So alfalfa, olives, for example, we have seen organic yields being similar to conventional. But, you know, if you look at uh, the, the mainstream, the traditional uh, grain crops and, and many orchard crops, yields are lower. You know, we see that we invest heavily in organic grains in the U.S. Midwest. And we typically see yield gaps of 15 to 20 percent, maybe 25 percent on corn, soybeans, uh, wheat, you know, depending on the exact system and the farmer's sort of approach. So there are yield gaps, you know, for many organic systems. So it's not one answer in yield. Um, so definitely some opportunities to improve other maybe yields might even might be the same. Others, they might go down. But I think with intermediate agriculture, in a way, that doesn't matter. I mean, that's not the farmer's goal. And one of the issues or one of the reasons which agriculture has emerged is almost a reaction against that productivist mindset, which dominated agriculture for so long, where farmers are being told to just maximize yield per hectare. The only thing that matters at is any cost, whatever yeah, you do. And, yeah. and pumping inputs and get the most yield and you're you could hold your head up high at the farmer conference because you won the that year's you know, the yield bushel per, uh, record, yeah. Yeah, bushels per, per acre. Whereas actually, I think the regenerative farmers are realizing it's not about yield per hectare, it's about profit per hectare. Um, and so they're, they're looking to optimize yield rather than to maximize yield, which gets you to the other levers. And I think this, the second key lever we see for regenerative, that regenerative edge in, on the economic side is around costs, like trying to reduce input costs. And that's a massive concern, as we know, farmers faced, you know, doubling or tripling of fertilizer prices over the last couple of years because of the situation, uh, you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we've seen spikes in fuel prices. We've seen increases in agrochemical costs. So um, these costs and are massive of these part are of the, down. the budget. Like there, there's no, I mean, maybe a bit, etc. But there's once they go up, well, it's very like fuel prices are very difficult to push down. And agrochemicals is not that suddenly the companies are like, yeah. oh, let's, let's give some discounts left and right. They have come down quite a bit. Just like to be fair, mm -hmm. over the last couple of years, the fertilizer people are down. So then get cyclical markets. Um, but we do we do tend to see a certain stickiness, um, in particular in things like seeds and chemicals, more branded products, where you know, often it's hard for the farmers to get the benefits of the the downturns in the cycles. They always seem to be struggling with the the upticks in pricing. Yeah, so when so reducing input costs, easier, like fertilizer, fuels, they they tend to be more connected to a global price. But yeah, branded seeds yeah. just are not so global and will stick upwards. Yeah. So if you can reduce your use of chemical fertilizers, of pesticides, um, of GMO seeds, and instead you can use compost, manures, uh, grow cover crops, grow your infertility, 
you know, uh, do integrated pest management and reduce those input costs, that, that can make a, a big input on a big uh, impact on profits. Um, a third thing we see though, a, a lever is around um, premium pricing. You know, can you actually achieve a better pricing for product by, by selling to premium markets? Again, organic is, is the most developed example of that, where, as I mentioned before, organic food markets are large, especially in, in Europe and the USA, they're growing strongly. The consumer, there is a strong consumer awareness of organic certification and willingness to pay a premium. Um, and there's some very strong premiums being delivered back to farmers at the farm gate. It depends on product. And we have a chart in the white paper where you might see U.S. corn selling for an 80% uh, premium for organics. U.S. blueberries are now more like a 0% premium because it's been oversupplied. So Eight, zero, each market has its like own supply-demand yeah, dynamics. That's so. massive. Like even if you have a 10, 15, 20% yield drop which might slowly close or some years you're actually better i mean that, that doesn't mean it's a permanent one you have massively lower costs over years or even same costs and you get a premium of 80 percent. that's going to change your yeah. your year quite significantly yeah and there's some st- uh, research just came out from the university of illinois actually looking at the farm predicted farm budgets for corn soybean growers in illinois uh, over 2024 and they're predicting that Conventional growers, average conventional growers, will lose money per acre. Um, whereas when we look at our our organic farmers, their budgets, you know, they're making you know, probably four or five hundred dollars per acre profit, you know, versus wow. a loss on the conventional side. So there's there's a stark difference at the moment uh, with current uh, organic versus conventional yeah. pricing. Yeah. So that's that's another reason for the edge is that those higher uh, product prices. I think a fourth lever, which is is developing quite quickly, we see around the world, is around payments for ecosystem services. In particular, carbon is, is the most developed, but maybe we'll see it for biodiversity and water impacts as well. Um, but if a farmer can have all these, um, create these environmental outcomes around soil health and carbon, biodiversity, water, and actually get paid for it in the form of credits or offsets or some other payments, that's an extra revenue line um, uh, in, in the farmers. Yeah, which is around well. 2%, I think, you like the, the, the extra payments you're um, envisioning. Has that happened outside Australia yet? Because you clearly mentioned Australia's leading the way here. Have you seen that with being active in three, uh, on three continents? Have you been paid for any, any environmental services beyond, uh, beyond Australia? Yeah, we're, we're working on an, a North America, Europe and Australia. Um, I will say Australia, we always say it's about 10 years ahead, you know, where I think we've sold um, over 1.7 million tons of CO2 credits in Australia and generate over 20 million Australian dollars of revenues um, uh, over the last five years. So it's a serious part of our business down there. In the US, as we just did a uh, pilot project in the, in the uh, US Midwest, looking at the carbon impacts of converting conventional cropland to organic certification. And within the first year, I think we generated, um, I think about 1,500 uh, credits, you know, from those farms. So, um, that was a pilot project, which is just, we're just finishing up the results of that now. So we're, st- we're just beginning to implement those systems in the U S and we're now working on a similar approach with our orchard farms, actually in Spain, with and Portugal, farmers, you know, working right? with climate yeah. farmers, yeah, to, to develop new methodologies and, 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 um, and potentially generate credits, probably more 2025 onwards. So this is not really there yet, right? For orchards, like both the tree carbon and the soil carbon, I've yet to see, um, interestingly enough work on that, like in terms of, of carbon credits, it's much more, it, it, I just haven't seen that, I think for, for per, perennial crops until now. 
Yeah, it's been more neglected and, and what we we looked all around and we didn't really see the methodologies um, and the schemes in place, which is why we're part with Climate Farmers and we're co-funding with them to develop the new methodologies, which are relevant to Mediterranean orchard crops. I think there's a, there's also a rationale, there's an explanation for that. Um, you're probably your bang for your buck is going to be lower on sort of high value orchards. You know, like if you can store, I don't know, two to five tons of CO2 per hectare, on an orchard, which might be worth, you know, 50,000 euros per hectare and you sell your credits, maybe you're getting 20 years, 30 years per ton, like maybe you're getting hundred years per hectare of extra revenue. It's a nice thing, but it's, it's not going to move the needle that much. If you can achieve, you know, one or two tons per hectare on land that's, you know, extensive wheat land, for example, in the high plains of the US, which is worth maybe, you know, $3,000 a hectare, it, it can it can produce much more significant income yield. So I think that's where we see the biggest um, uh, lever, let's say, in returns is probably more in grazing land, more extensive cropping land. And as you get to higher value irrigated orchard type land, the the impact returns is lower. But we do something is very important because it helps you measure and report your impact. You know, because you're getting rigorous third party verified carbon accounting effectively, which is important for other other reasons as well. And. Like it seems, especially the last few years, like the climate weirding is, is really getting weird. Like how much are um, investors holding back or is that a part of their, their uh, rationale to maybe not invest in agriculture at all, simply because it seems all difficult, even though maybe Regen uh, offers an edge or an hedge, sorry, to, to that. Like how much is the climate weirding part of your conversations or not so much because we see it constantly too warm, constantly too cold, constantly too wet, too dry, too, like every summer or every, wherever you live seems to be extreme at the moment. And that was in 2016, didn't feel like that yet. Like it's definitely yeah. speeding up. Is that something you hear uh, from, from the investor side? Yeah, I think we do. We, we, that's, we increasingly get that question. I think you have to separate between weather and climate, you know, so farming has always been a weather dependent business yeah. and there's, there's wet spells, there's dry spells, there's, there's cyclicality and variability. So you're, you're still that's one in Australia, I remember you invested and I think if you went to do the worst dry spell ever, uh, ever recorded for the first, I don't remember how many years of the fund. Yeah. It's pretty nuts. Yeah. So, so this is not new, you're saying. Yeah. But I think what, what investors are increasingly um, cautious about, and we are too, is those long-term changes in, 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 in that weather through climate change. Um, so I think it's something we put a lot more effort into now than ever before, whenever we develop a new strategy is that it's a top-down climate analysis. Um, looking at the climate change models, looking at predictions, precipitation, um, you know, rainfall, the temperature. Um, it's particularly important with some of these orchard crops if you're planting an orchard for 20, 30 years and your almonds might need a particular number of chilling hours or, you know, there's a frost risk. So, yeah, doing that at climate analysis is, is really the, one of the starting points now for all our strategies and be able to show that you, that region you're investing in, that crop or system you're investing in is going to be um, have a, at least a, a neutral or positive climate skew, you know, with climate change. But I think the other thing, and this is going back to those levers of return to regenerative edge, it, it is what it is um, using regenerative agriculture to increase resilience on farm, you know, because if you can have healthier soils with more organic matter, storing water in the dry spells, um, uh, you know, absorbing water in the floods, it's going to help with, with, with the resilience and take us on the variability of production. And you've covered us a lot in your podcast over the years, but it's that risk mitigation resilience that comes from regenerative agriculture. Um, can take out some of that maybe uh, fluctuations in profitability. So you put it all together, just going back to, uh, in terms of numbers, we, there's regenerative edge. Yeah, what's the regen edge? People are waiting. Like we, Sorry, I didn't come back to we, it. We see that um, 
you know, that regenerative approach can maybe add like one to 3% to an IRR. That's typically what you see at the farm level when you're investing in real assets in a farm itself, uh, depending on kind of where you are and what, what, what system you're investing in. So it's, it's certainly, um, it's, it's, it's a very attractive, let's say, extra return uh, that investors can get by backing these regenerative systems. Again, really peaking the context, location, farm, farmer, and crop really, market really, really, really well, because otherwise you, I've also heard stories of investors saying they did, and, and landowners are saying they did all kinds of regenerative things and basically uh, left everything to, like, went cold turkey uh, with chemicals, left everything bit by themselves to to develop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and then complained it didn't, it didn't work, whatever it was, um, regen didn't work. I'm like, yeah, that's going to hurt the story for a bit, or that's going to, because it's very intense, like management is, is inc- like knowledge management and management of the land is very intense in any transition. And, and we should not underestimate, uh, underestimate that, but one, two, three percent is, is significant in real asset strategies, uh, to, to be achieved. And if you look at the portfolio now or, or things you're looking at without revealing too much, like what's, what part of the regenerative agriculture sphere excites you the most at the moment uh, probably not blueberries but what, what is like you think oh that's actually um actually very very exciting is the grain side the animal side uh, we'll get to animals because you cover quite a bit in, in the white paper but um what what is um or the the orchard side of things yes yeah, so a couple of areas we're working on now so, so one is um uh looking to invest in mixed farming systems in australia where we can also start carbon projects. I think that, that's quite exciting because yeah, Australia is yeah. shout out to Baird. It's pretty is very advanced when it comes to integrating livestock and cropping. And that's something which we've sort of forgotten how to do in the US and many other parts of the world. But Australian farmers have a long tradition of, of integrating grazing into cropping systems and you can get some great benefits with weed control and nutrient recycling and, and really regenerative impacts. Um, but also we see some big potential soil carbon increases and how you manage such perennial pastures uh, within those systems. Um, and the Australian carbon market is, is very developed now. So we feel we can underwrite generation sale of credit so, such that it can be, again, add that 2 3% maybe to, to the return from those strategies. So that's something we're, we're launching now and developing with uh, our local partner, Impact Ag. So that's something that's yeah big focus in the next couple of years. Um, and what kind of system would yeah, it be? Per- like permanent pasture with... Uh, row crops in it, permanent pasture with perennials. Like how, how would, how do you see that? So we, we just bought a large farm in New South Wales, which has, I think it's about, you know, over three and a thousand hectares and it's about a third dry land cropping, a third perennial pasture, a third more native uh, vegetation. So you're getting these sort of mixed landscapes and you can use the animals, um, you know, they're grazing the perennial pasture, but also rotating through those cropping uh, zones as well um, to get the, the beneficial impacts on, on the cropping part of the business as well. So it's yeah, optimizing that, that landscape uh, use. And sorry, beyond that, you were, you were continuing. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing we, we, we are doing a lot of work on um, orchard systems, you know, both in California on, on the West coast of the U S but also in Spain and Portugal. And we do think that um, it's a point you made earlier that, Regenerative agriculture um, has sort of overlooked a little bit the orchard systems. You know, there's more focus on, on annual cropping, arable systems, or in livestock systems. But we do think there's great potential in orchards. You know, even quite commercial intensive orchards to take away some of the negative impacts of the high chemical use and, and soil degradation. 
um, and instead use cover crops and composts and and um, and minimum till and even integrating livestock grazing and whole orchard recycling, a whole bunch of practices that can really improve soil health, change the carbon footprint quite a bit of those orchards. Um, and also potentially allow you to go fully organic, you know, where you can attract some of the premium. So that's something we're actively working on in, in Europe and the US. And then let's, as a final piece or whatever we go to, but let's tackle the livestock uh, piece because you have quite a, a significant uh, sort of chapter or module in, uh, in the white paper on livestock. Um, I think in the last seven, eight years since the last one came out, um, livestock has been intensely debated uh, on all sides. We've seen a whole hype cycle, I think, of lab-grown, plant-based, which of course not the same uh, meat, which seems to deflate, collapse now a bit. Um, you per for sure had to explain a hundred thousand times why you invest in livestock as an impact investor. Um, so what made you put livestock so significantly, uh, let's say, in the, in the white paper now? Yeah, it's a question we get all the time, you know, from investors and others. And so we wanted to step back a bit and almost explain like, what's the case for well-managed pasture-raised livestock, you know, and how they can have very positive impacts. And I think, you know, there's it's a very highly contested area and um, with the scientific community, because since we wrote our first white paper in 2016, there were then a number of very critical reports sort of painting livestock, in particular cattle, as sort of environmental villains you know, because of the methane and other emissions associated with them. But I think there has been a bit of a swinging back of the pendulum, you know, as other reports now recently have come out, trying to understand the impacts of livestock within a system, you know, um, uh, looking at the ability to store carbon in soils as a, to offset some of those emissions, but also um, the ability of livestock to use areas of land we can't use for anything else. You know, they can consume grasses, which humans cannot, and turn into a very healthy, nutritious product. Um, and so they, they allow us to to make use of of, uh, of of areas of land which can actually help conserve, you could say, uh, other natural areas. You know, so there and, and there's a food security angle, there's a human culture angle there as well. So we wanted to step back, and I think our view is that um, you know, well managed livestock on pasture. There's quite a few examples now where the soil carbon uh, sequestration impacts can be very substantial and can go a long way very towards changing I see yeah, some that carbon research footprint. coming out of the US, which is. Yeah. Very substantial, yeah. Yeah. Um, questions, of course, around does that apply in every ecosystem? Permanent, of course, not the same way. Um, would you soils get saturated over time? Does the, the that effect wear off? Lots of open questions, but our view is um, we think we're only starting as well to kind of touch the surface of, 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 of research on this. You know, So as, as these case studies get fully explored and, and, and synthesized, I think we'll, we'll see a bit of a shift where people do recognize that soil carbon storage can go a long way towards offsetting some of those methane emissions. And then I think it's looking at livestock and assistance point of view. There's some great research came out of France um, recently where they, they actually model out a, a, a different European food system, which is effectively quasi-organic, you know, so taking out of nitrogen fertilizer, a lot of chemicals, and um, using very organic regenerative systems. What would that food system look like? And they also, I think, spared 10% of farmland for afforestation, so taking land out of production. Their conclusion was you'd have a lot less cereals, um, and because of that, you'd have a lot, a lot less pigs and chickens, so monogastric animals. You'd have actually the same amount of cattle, because the, the cattle can make use of those natural grasslands and perennial pastures, which aren't used for anything else. Yeah. <laughs> And you can integrate it into cropping systems and get to nutrition and weed control benefits. So a truly regenerative system, in our view, actually really benefits some livestock. Um, 
So yes, we don't think they're environmental villains. You know, it's 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 a kind of trite phrase. It's the how, not the cow. And we think you have to look at a slightly more systems perspective to to really understand the impacts. Yeah, and I think there's there's a piece on the methane as well, which. As far as I understand, all the research, especially the super negative ones, obviously has been based on models and has been based on um, CAFO operations where it's been measured to a certain extent, of course, fed grain and cereals and things like that. And the few things where we've seen it, I, I discussed it with Baird Glover as well uh, a few years back, like to actually research it on farm on a healthy pasture to see the amount of methane a cow actually emits is very difficult. And hasn't been done many cases. So the, the methane we see in those charts might be from a, um, a cave operation instead of from a healthy pasture. So maybe the methane um, is less or is different or has a different role there. So the, both sides have to be researched, both the carbon side and uh, the actual uh, methane, methane side. But it seems, yeah, it seems that the narrative is shifting slightly. Um, but still it's very strong, especially our world in data, always that, that fancy graph where beef is like all the way outside the screen and the rest is uh, uh, you, you can better eat almonds and, and things like that, uh, which are very healthy. Let's, let's not, uh, but the, the research is not, um, just not show that it's outdated LCAs that shouldn't be used, shouldn't be used for that. And then another one you mentioned, I think in two lines or something in the white paper on um, vertical farms and, and other things that let's say have hyped over the last seven, eight years. Um, what do you see there? Because you probably have to compete sometimes, at least for the investor attention um, to, because they fall in the same bucket as food and egg, but completely different, of course. Like what's your normal go-to answer when investors says, why should I just not invest in uh, vertical farm XYZ compared to uh, something so complicated and far away in Australia? Yeah, um, it, I think they're fundamentally different asset classes, you know, if you're if you're investing in farmland, you know, and appreciating natural asset is fundamentally different from investing in effectively a, a factory, you know, a food factory in steel and machinery, which depreciates over time. So, you know, that's, that's more of a private equity, you could say strategy. So it could be a different risk return profiles. Um, that's the first thing. I think the second is, you know, what's the scalability of some of those models and, um, and we've, there's certainly some successful vertical farming models growing high value, leafy greens, tomatoes, you know, very specialized crops where people willing to pay a premium for closeness to market and freshness. But I've seen no evidence that it can ever scale to grow staple food crops. You know, they're going to feed the world. So it's, it's a very, it's a niche specialized, um, business, you know, but, but I, I think it has been overhyped. And I think, um, we've seen the same with some of the plant-based meat, um, products. We've seen the same with lab-based meat. So I think there's a, there's, I think there's a, there's a, there's a blur, a strange blurred line where, you know, marketing um, latches onto science and selectively uses science to 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 create a, a narrative around a business model. And, and I think that can catch on the media cover it and everyone gets on that bandwagon for a while. And it takes a little bit of time for reality to sort of kick back in and people to realize that maybe some of those claims were, were overdone. I think we've seen that in some of those uh, more techie sectors of the last few years. Yeah, and, and talking about technology, there's this narrative which we try to, to dispel, of course, constantly, but this regenerative agriculture is anti-science and anti-technology. Like it's going back to 
whatever that we probably don't want to go back to uh, plowing the field by hand. Um, um, what what do you when you see that sort of look on an investor's face that they think, oh, this is this is hippie stuff. Um, what do you normally say, or what do you um, do? You get them on the farm, or do you like what? What do you? How do you counter that narrative of this is anti-science yeah. and anti-technology and nice for for hippies in a in a backyard? Yeah, well, we certainly tackle that in the white paper because, uh, like, we we would strongly make the claim that regenerative agriculture is based on the the most advanced science. Like all the the pioneering discoveries in, in ag science over the last few years have all been around biology. You know, the role of of healthy soils and biologically biologically active soils and how they can support productive farming systems. That's where all the advances have been taking place. You know, it's how do we wean ourselves off the chemicals and, and use biology instead. And we even talk in, in a bigger picture. If you look at it, like over hundreds of years, I think you can obviously three um, different agriculture revolutions. You know, the first revolution in agriculture in the 19th century was around mechanization. So bigger tractors, reapers, harvesters, allowing farmers to, to farm big areas. The next phase, really, the 20th century was around chemicals, you know, so using um, uh, synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, agrochemicals, pesticides, and then uh, uh, certain seeds, which could make use of those high inputs to grow more yield, you know, per, per hectare. But I think the third revolution, which is starting to happen now, is, is a shift towards biology, you know, understanding um, how these biological uh, systems work and how soils function, and then uh, harnessing the biological ecological process to build good farming systems. So I think we're seeing it on the ground with farmers. We're seeing it with actually lots of startup companies too, working biologicals and you know fertilizers stimulants seed coating so that's i think where all the activity is and regenerative agriculture is, is building on that building on that science so that's the first thing we always say i think the second around absolutely right around um uh, labor uh, and, and the role of you know mechanization and technology um the other big challenge that all farmers and farming systems have is attracting labor you know finding people to work on the land it's getting harder and harder and that's not necessarily a bad thing because people don't want to do menial backbreaking sort of peasant type labor in the fields anymore if they can avoid it. Um, and so I think we see increasing need for clever use of machines and technology, robotics, you know, robotic weeders. Um, we're we may experiment with a self-driving electric tractor in our orchards in California to mow the cover crops so we don't need to spray herbicides. You know, so they can be very consistent, we think, with, um, again, biological regenerative systems where you're, again, taking out the chemicals and using machines, technology, robots uh, um, for, for mechanical and other control of, of, of pests and disease and weeds. And do you then see investors click on that or it, it depends obviously, but do you, is that a, an easily overcomable, let's say narrative to, to get people on board that this is actually modern agriculture and, and not traditional or, or like not going back to. Yeah. I think if you get, if you get investors out on farm and they see that these are scaled up commercial operations, Real farms, yeah. <laughs> farmers with, you know, like healthy balance sheets with millions of dollars in assets or euros in assets and employing, you know, you know, f people and, and in business and growing, I think, yeah, they see that these are real proper businesses. So I, I, I do think the evidence is there. Like this isn't just sort of one hectare hobby plots, you know, in, in someone's backyard. This, these are proper commercial farms applying these ideas, you know, on, on a big scale. And do you do that a lot, like getting investors out there? We, we try, we always invite um, uh, and, and always welcome investors to come. It can be hard, you know, they're, they're busy, they have limited budgets. So, but I find it makes a huge difference if you can get people out on farm for a day or two and everything tends to click, you know, after that much more quickly. Yeah, the conversion I think goes up significantly. I heard somebody, 
who was it? Probably an interview that just went out actually, as we were talking on agroforestry partners, like almost every investor that visited, of course, the sample size might be small, but almost everybody that visited ended up investing. Um, and, and just, yeah, the selection criteria is of course also there. You only go yep. if you're pretty sure you're going to do something, but still it's very strong because most people, let's not forget, are in New York, London, Amsterdam, Delhi, uh, Shanghai, wherever in financial centers, let's say their exposure to farmland is very limited and, and yeah, learning through white papers is great, but getting out there is, uh, is a whole different experience. And there are examples everywhere you can visit. Like it's not impossible to find something a couple of hours travel uh, from where you are to, to see at least something relatively scalable with, with a lot of interesting um, practices applied. So I think that is a perfect way to, to wrap this interview up or this conversation up. I want to thank you so much for uh, rewriting the white paper or re completely uh, redoing that and, and publishing. I know I've been uh, annoying you for a long time. When is anyone coming? When is anyone coming? For sure, many others have done the same. So thank you for that. This is uh, definitely a, a huge asset. I, I can't remember how many times I shared the previous one. So now I have to update my links um, <laughs> and uh, we'll make sure to spread this as wide and far as possible. So thank you, Paul, so much for, uh, for joining us here, for sharing and for all the hard work uh, on the land, investing, and of course, writing this white paper. Yeah, no, thanks, Jana, and thanks for publicizing the last paper. And I think it probably it was partly your nagging over the last two or three years was prompted us to write the next one. So uh, let us know when you think uh, the third uh, chapter is, is required. I, I won't do it for a couple of years, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>